is a bloody disgusting podcast network. back to horror queers we're talking sweaty shirtless scott bacula we're talking visible penis line and we're talking dick hair and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking really really bad sex music ah i was so certain that you were gonna go with like forehead proboscis that i left it for you no and so hey no (laughs) i i was gonna go with the forehead butthole but but i have something later involving that that's I think is really funny about how straight people and queer people see things very differently. Oh, man. This is a film that is filled with buttholes. (laughs) We're talking Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions, everybody. Yes. Did you love when it showed up and it said Clive Barker's? I was just like, ah, it's giving me Blumhouse vibes from back in the day. Blumhouse vibes. Because you know how oh, Blumhouse now insists on doing Island. like Blumhouse's Fantasy well, Island. I was trying to think of like, okay, you know, you have like your Clive Barker's, your John Carpenter's blah, 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 and Wes Craven's mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But we don't really have that. I think maybe we have Jordan Peele. Like, I think, I can't remember if it was promoted as like Jordan Peele's Us, but I feel like it was. Ooh, I don't know. I mean, it was definitely promoted as his film, but I don't know if it was like a above the title kind of thing. Right. But, you know, it's like like for our quote unquote horror masters of today, like, you know, you you don't see James Wan's The Conjuring, uh, Lee Whannell's The Invisible Man, you know, and I feel like I feel like they sometimes they deserve that credit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, there's there's something mildly narcissistic about the idea of like throwing your big old name up there, right? Like this is my motherfucking movie. And I have thoughts about why Clive Barker should be allowed that distinction. But it it is a strange moniker like does it come with a an extra producing credit or something or is it just like james wan is like yeah i'm okay thanks i i don't know maybe maybe it's a product of the times you know uh yeah back before social media existed when name recognition was more important um Mm. so like if you know people knew it was a west craven film people knew it was a john carpenter film like that was advertising for the movie whereas we don't need that today yeah because you can just go on them their internets <laughs> um but yeah no so i'm i'm a little shocked so yeah, we are in our second week of pride month and while Ooh. i will confess when you selected this movie for this week i was a little perplexed because a i knew nothing about it um this is one of the few times that i've gone into one of our films completely blind i knew mm-hmm. jack shit about this movie to the point <laughs> where <laughs> when you told me that van Key jansen was in it i was like what the fuck how did I not know that? I know. I think it's amazing that, of course, we have also managed to do a double bill of Famke Jansen and Kevin J. O'Connor films this week. So, folks, if you're not on the Patreon, you absolutely should because we're doing the reunion film Deep Razin. <laughs> Which came out just three years after this one and also flopped, just like this one. Uh, I mean, nobody said that they were a match made in heaven. <laughs> okay, so I, I like Kevin J. O'Connor. Like, I mean, I, I know him from the mummy and from deep rising but the whole time mm-hmm. we're watching this andrews my, my husband was like why is he so ugly <laughs> oh yeah like the kind of actor that would never be cast in a 2000s and up film because he ain't pretty enough much less married to famke jansen in any movie 
Well, it's not love, Trace. No, she did not marry him for love. <laughs> As we are told 50 times in this movie. It's, no, because I'm sure Barker was thinking to himself, like, I gotta explain this. No one is going to believe this marriage. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I, I, I do, like... Maybe I don't know like, the vibe I get from that marriage because like, she's she's I think she, the words that she uses is that it's an obligation and I'm just like that sounds really rapey like I don't like it it, it doesn't sit well with me but whatever. oh no I mean the the implication is so gross like it's good <laughs> that you picked that up because she is a child when he rescues oh spoilers Dude, for this right. movie um, <laughs> she is a child when he rescues her so for her to be like i felt obligated to then marry my rescuer you're like oh no honey sweetie see a therapist because that <laughs> is the trauma speaking and uh, everyone in case you have not seen this movie um it is streaming on voodoo for 3.99 um that's the only place i could see to stream it um however uh, there is also a Scream Factory Blu-ray that went out of print just a few months ago, but uh, I, I think that I think that Blu-ray came out in 2014. But yeah, um, no longer in print. So if you want to buy it, it's about sixty bucks now. Yep, hit them. There's eBay's. <laughs> Uh, so to come to circle back around to the reason why we're programming this film. So circling back around to what you said before, this is actually not the original film that we had programmed for this week. So originally we had a Candyman tie-in and that was going to be our sort of Clive Barker discussion because I knew that I always wanted to talk about Clive Barker for Pride Month. But originally this was going to be the weekend that Candyman opened and instead... We have no Candyman opening, so I swapped it out for a different Clive Barker film, which is maybe better because this is true Clive Barker. It's one of only three films he's actually directed. Unless y'all are saying, well, why the fuck didn't y'all do Nightbreed? Um, we already wrote about it in our article series almost like just over a year ago to the day. So y'all can go read that. I just don't want to watch that movie again for uh, like a year. Yeah, it's it's a lot of movie. And to be fair, this is a lot of movie as well. Clyde Barker has never shied away from doing exactly whatever the fuck he wants. And as a result, we end up getting some fairly loaded movies. Like these are a little bit bloated. These are mm-hmm. a little bit jam-packed with ideas, not all of which pay off. And I would say personally that I would prefer to watch Lord of Illusions over Nightbreed, even though I think Nightbreed is a more interesting failure. Lord of Illusions feels a little bit more streamlined for mass consumption while still (laughs) firmly playing in the Clyde Barker sandbox. I will agree with you. This film, so I'll be totally up front, y'all. I actually did like Lord of Illusions, and I do prefer it to Nightbreed, but I do agree with your sentiment. Like, I think that there is more interesting things going on in Nightbreed, but... Maybe it was just because, like, I watched the theatrical cut of Nightbreed, and then I watched the director's cut, which is, like, almost three hours long, like, within 24 hours. So I got my... Yeah, I got my fill of that movie. And so, watching this, which... It wasn't as tampered with as much by the studio as Nightbreed was, but I mean, they they basically the studio chopped out like 13 minutes of this film, which mm-hmm. is in the director's cut, which is the version that we're going to be talking about. So there may be a couple of scenes where if you did not watch that, you may say, oh, I didn't see that. It's a bit of a mixed bag. Some of the stuff you're like, oh, this absolutely should not have been cut out. It mm-hmm. merits keeping in the film. And then there are other parts where you're like, this feels like padding and probably was a good idea to remove. Yes. And so... I know that this film has amassed quite a cult following. I am fully aware of that fact. <laughs> Sorry, did you tie that into the plot summary? Because 
the, the cult following of this film is not the same as the cult following in the film. Let's make that distinction. Wait, you mean you didn't fall onto broken glass and walk around on it for a little bit when you watched it? No, I went and I released a whole bunch of poisonous snakes onto my coworker at the reptile house of the zoo. <laughs> I love that. I loved it. Oh, anything with snakes, I'm 100% there for. I loved about a third of this movie. Like hardcore loved it. Like hardcore loved it. Like I said, yeah. I-, I loved everything with the cult. The first 15 minutes, which by the way, the opening of this movie is fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. And I loved the last 20, uh, 30 minutes of this movie. But. <laughs> and then there's the middle stuff. <laughs> I should have done my research because doing it today, I was like, oh, everyone's calling this movie a noir, a horror noir. Mm-hmm. Had I been prepared for that, I might have been more at ease with this film. But in, everyone, in case you ha- don't know, I don't like noir. It is not my favorite subgenre. It ranks just above westerns and things I don't ever want to watch particularly. And so... While I know that Scott Bakula's Harry Damore has a lot of fans, I could not get on board with this character or any of the procedural, like, noir detective stuff. Right. Yeah, you like Dick, but not Private Dick. Yes, exactly. That being said, I have read that apparently this is a film where a lot of people didn't like it on their first viewing. And mm-hmm. they it's one of those ones where they like it more and more each time they watch it. So that might be the case with me. I just can't imagine me wanting to watch it again anytime soon, much like Nightbreed. But, that you know, yeah, whatever. It's, it's not like a constant viewing type of film. I'll confess, one of the reasons I wanted to program this is because I have very fond memories of it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, attentive listeners will at this point be shooting themselves in the face because they're so tired of hearing me talk about Hellraiser and Candyman. But this is another film that my sister used to watch with me all the time because she was in love with Scott Bakula because he was from Quantum Leap and... I mean, I know, Tracy, you said that you don't find him particularly attractive, but like in this mid-90s period, he was an everyman hunk. And he's so personable and likable, even though in this movie, he's not particularly personable and likable. I mean, he's, he's, again, it's that kind of noir detective, you know, closed off a bit, mm-hmm. like gruff, blah, blah, blah. I, and I, I'll confess, the only thing that I know Scott Bakula from is from his guest stint on HBO's Looking. So people kept saying, oh, like Scott Bakula, Scott Bakula. And I'm like, I don't know who that is. So I, I didn't. Like, I didn't watch Quantum Leap. Yeah, that would have been before your time. Right, but then there's Star Trek Enterprise, which is probably, like, in my preteen years. <sighs> but that's the one that everybody fucking hates. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about Star Trek. Um, <laughs> and he's now currently on NCIS New Orleans and has been for, like, six years. But I also don't watch that show. So no. I have mm. no point of reference for Scott Bakula. And we know I have an affinity for Twinks. Not per- Not... Yeah. I'm not going to close This off. is too daddy. Well, I'm not going to close <laughs> off the daddy group, but yes, I I don't particularly find him attractive. And listeners, if I have said if I have already like cut ties with y'all and y'all are like fuck this, I'm out. I understand. But trust me, we're going to have a good conversation about this movie and Clive Barker in general. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry they'll just leave us reviews where they'll be like oh i completely disagree with trace but i still love your podcast and i love joe more yeah that, that's that, that's the bulk of our, our of our reviews no i'm just kidding it's good i don't think anybody says that they love me more they're all like ah oh, trace talk about your cum fixation again <laughs> <laughs> wait how do we get back here that was like two or three episodes and that's it that, that, that is the limit of my cum discussions but anyway god damn it can we please talk about magic versus illusion oh my god <laughs> <laughs> um no but, but but seriously if you haven't seen this film i would recommend going and watching going out and see, like, seeking it out and watching it because 
while not all of it would have really worked for me, I still think it's a fascinating film. And I, God, some of the effects and imagery in this film are just fucking awesome. Yeah. Dodgy 90s CGI aside. Oh, yes. Absolutely terrible CGI that has not aged well. But if you're watching films from this era, this is kind of like what we were getting from everybody and it i don't know that it ever looked great but it was what we were willing to concede was possible with like sort of primitive ethics right um so before we go into the film itself i did i think maybe we should talk about clive barker a little bit because this is his third and final directorial effort he has not directed a film since this No, and part of this is that he has been sick for a large part of the 21st century, so he is not a well man. He's had a couple of fairly fairly significant health scares, Um, but I do know that he has remained creatively energized, but I think it's still been more in the world of books, which of course is like where he got his start. Well, and that's that's where, like... When we get into this film a little bit more, I just I re- I have read a lot of Barker's writing, um, specifically the Books of Blood and the Hellbound Heart. Um, I love his writing. Mm-hmm. I am iffy with his directorial style, and so I I love Hellraiser, and I think the reason that film works much better for me than Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions is that it's it's even though there is a big mythology built into it, the overall story is very simple. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Nightbreed, it almost feels like he's. He has all this stuff in his head, and he puts it on the screen, but he I feel like he, he sometimes forgets some things, and so it's like he just expects people to know everything he knows that's in his brain already, and it's not that I find it confusing, but it's like a simultaneously overstuffed and understuffed film. Yes, and I think this is important. So if people have only engaged with his film works, you probably watch the films, and particularly Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions, reflect just what you're talking about. It's actually quite reflective of his writing style, right? Yeah. Where they're sprawling, world building, and like you're waiting to see if things are going to come together. And sometimes they don't, and sometimes they take like a thousand pages to get back to because he's he's almost more interested in just exploring things and his prose mm-hmm. is so poetic. Oh yeah. I think sometimes he almost gets lost in himself and the stories that he's telling and that works in a book because you can reread it. You can kind of jump around. You can take a breather in a film that's more narratively streamlined. Yeah. It doesn't work quite as well. I agree with that. But that being said, like, and I, I have not read the short story this is based on, but I did do some research. Um, apparently it doesn't matter because it's very different. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Even just like the opening is quite different. Like Swan dies immediately because he is like, he gets impaled. And then a woman that he's about to have an affair with gets eaten by a tiger. Yes. I'll do this really quickly. Then we'll go back to Barker. But yeah, basically, everyone, if you have not read the short story, the only similarities is that Harry is attracted to Dorothea. Mm-hmm. Swan was an illusionist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Butterfield, our queer, explicit queer content, in my opinion, is the main antagonist. But right. the whole story itself, I mean, basically, uh, Swan, yes, you're right. Swan is killed immediately trying to seduce a fam. Um, Harry gets the assignment to watch his body until it can be cremated. But other people, other, I guess, cultists want his body. So basically, Harry teams up with Swan's assistant, Valentine, and they have a good relationship in the short story, not so in the film, to protect the body. And that is the bulk of it. They head out to the city, Weekend at Bernie's style, (laughs) and basically just, it's a road trip almost, it sounds like. And then also Dorothea is revealed to be a villain. 
And there's no sex scene, there's no Nyx, there's no cult, there's no other magicians, and there's no Mandrill. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where I think he's more interested in exploring the relationship between magic and illusion, and sort of like what underpins almost like a darker side of the city. But yeah, not culty. Yeah. (laughs) Because this movie is explicitly like cult is the framing device, and then there's some magic versus illusion in the middle. Which is kind of cool, you know, I mean... had Barker not been the uh, the writer of the film, I could see fans of his story being like, what the fuck? You're right. butchering this story. But because it's Barker, he kind of has, you know, carte blanche to do whatever the fuck he wants. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that's actually a very lovely segue to mm-hmm. bring us back to Barker. So well done on Yay. that. I think one of the big things is that if you read interviews with Clyde Barker, he is outspoken as fuck like, but like very polite because i feel like sometimes yes. outspoken has a negative connotation to it i both of us we saw out this um we, we found this interview from 1995 um with an australian radio program called queer radio and i don't think i've ever heard him speak before like i've read his interviews but i've never mm-hmm. heard him he's very polite kind and yes. genuine yeah very well spoken but i yes Absolutely. I'm 100% agreeing with you. When I said outspoken, I probably should have said that he is, he's very firm in his beliefs. Like he knows what he is trying to do and he will not suffer fools. And in this case, we're talking about fools in the film industry business, because (laughs) of course he has a very specific vision that he's trying to actualize on the screen. And I think that also tends to happen a lot more when we see people who are writing and then directing their own work. Right. So like you've written the script, you can imagine what it's going to look like on screen. You know what you're trying to achieve. And then you're getting studio notes from people saying like, well, can we make it sexier? Mm, I don't think we're going to be able to get that through. And Barker simply does not take those kinds of notes so like in the case of nightbreed that's why we ended up with like a 25 year gap where his preferred vision of the film was not realized because there was major studio interference i mean there's three cuts of that movie there's theatrical there's directors and there's cabal so much and we will come back to that film one day because there is too much not to talk about like i feel like we barely scratched the surface in that editorial oh for sure and yeah y'all go read it but we never like Don't worry, we will cover it one day, just not this year. Yeah. (laughs) So with Lord of Illusions, I mean, he was coming off of that negative directorial experience. This is only a couple years later. So he he was actually still active as a filmmaking creative. And I think in this case, he kind of knew how to roll with those punches. Because it sounds like when you read interviews with him about the way he approached this film... He wanted to make it a certain way when he started to get pushback about like, we're going to have to cut certain scenes. The MPAA says no to this. Mm -hmm. He was just like, cool, as long as he was then given the ability to make a director's cut. So like this director's cut was actually in the books from the very moment that he submitted that film. Mm -hmm. So he always knew that his preferred vision was going to be available at the time on laserdisc oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and then of course that translated into future iterations of you know dvd and now blu-ray so if you're watching the film if you can track down the director's cut this is his preferred vision this is what he always anticipated the film would look like and i think i already said it it is 13 minutes longer than the, the the theatrical cut i would argue that seven of them are fine and five of them or six of them are not for me 
It, it's just more of the kind of stuff that you are already not inclined to enjoy because it's more of the noir stuff. It's more right. the investigation stuff. Well, that's the thing, though. Like, I can see why Barker would want to keep it in. The noir stuff is all character-based around Harry. So if yes. you don't like Harry, that stuff isn't going to work for you. But then the other stuff that was cut is cult stuff that I would wager mm. had issues with the MPAA. So yes. that was more like censorship cutting than it was like, oh, let's help the pacing cutting. Absolutely correct. Yeah. I think one of the, so you, you've mentioned Demore. This is a character that Clyde Barker has actually written about fairly extensively. So he mm -hmm. appears in a number of short stories. And then he also appears in Barker's most recent book, which of course is also, uh, <laughs> it basically features Demore going up against Pinhead. But of course, he's not called Pinhead because Clyde Barker has never used that terminology. That's a term coined by fans of the original Hellraiser film. Well, or if you w listen to our Hellraiser Bloodline episode, um, the security guard that says, that guy has pins in his head. Pins in his head. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God bless those actors. No, but I, I, I mean, yeah. So yeah, and you're right. He's been through a bunch of short stories. Um, th there are two novels, The Great and the Se the Great and Secret Show and Everville that he's also appeared in. But mm -hmm. yeah, it seems like it's primarily a short story character and I guess maybe also graphic novels. I mean, that's the other interesting thing, right? Like Clyde Barker is also a very accomplished artist and then he's collaborated on shorts as well as graphic novels. Mm. So Barker is an openly gay director. Yes, he is. Makes no apologies for it. No, and that's honestly, again, even reading this interview from 1995, where when he was doing press for this film, he explicitly told his team, like, oh, look for queer outlets to talk to, talk to because I want to talk to them about this movie. Which, again, I'm just thinking, in 1995? Like, yeah. how hard was... <laughs> He was looking for us in 1995. He was looking for queer horror people. For He was looking for that community. Yeah. It's he just, was. I mean, I, I think one of the things, like, I have a directly personal connection to Clive Barker. Like, mm -hmm. the way that he makes movies, the kinds of stories that he writes, speaks to me very strongly as a horror fan. I feel like it's very much shaped my trajectory of what I like, what I'm drawn to. You know, the fact that he's erudite, but that he's you know, unconventional in his approaches to religion and, uh, you know, magic and that kind of stuff. Like, I, I love the different kinds of things that he's bringing to the creative process. But I think beyond my own personal connection, because of course, it's not fucking about me, right? Barker is one of these icon members of the community who is out there literally shaping the world so that people like you and I could proudly proclaim like we are queer horror fans well so, yeah i mean cause, cause i'm trying to think of like like notable queer horror creators specifically and i'm like okay i got clive barker mm -hmm. um don mancini but again he wouldn't direct a film until seat of chucky so he was just firmly like writing i mean i don't mean it's like just writing obviously writing's yeah. really important and then uh, i mean who else is there yeah, I mean, like, we can list off probably a dozen queer directors who are out now. Mm -hmm. Like, we, you know, we've got all of Christopher the, Landon. The, yeah, Christopher Landon, Adam Robitaille, Chris Peckford. Like, we... Peckover. Got Chris Peckover. Peckover. I thought it was Peckford. Nope, Peckover. All right. Yes, you're right. Peckover. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, of course, we've got a bunch of, well... 
fewer female directors who are publicly out but really like we're talking about people who have emerged onto the scene in the last like five to ten years Mm -hmm. so we're talking very firmly into the aughts whereas this is a, a man who was out there making very controversial you know very queer very sexualized films in the late 80s and early 90s and i i mean i feel like one of the reasons that he caused so many ruffles and you can feel the impact of his work is because he was bringing a kind of sexual politics from europe to the united states right because he is british he is British. And even though Hellraiser is actually shot in Britain and it has like a number of, you know, cast members and crew who were obviously British, um, it it's technically a film that's set in the US. And it's like, I mean, I think its legacy has really carried on in the US where unfortunately we've well, gotten a whole host of I also wanted to point so out too, <laughs> he is directing three horror films in the probably like the worst time to be releasing horror films because... Mm-hmm. If you, if listeners if y'all go back if y'all go back and listen to our episode on Scream, which is our second episode ever, I go through a list of like the horror films that we were getting in the early '90s, like pre-Scream, yes. mm-hmm. and it's not great. It's not um, great. I mean, we we've, we've actually covered a number of films that are genuinely great, but at the time they didn't have that reception, and it felt like a bit of a wasteland. Right, because yeah, because horror was essentially being rejected by the masses at that point because it had quote unquote devolved into Friday Thirteenth Part Eight. And mm-hmm. Nightmare Five or Freddy's Dead, like I, people were over it. Critics, critics were always over it, but like <laughs> audiences were over it by that point. Like I mean, and when yeah. we get to the box office for this film, we're gonna see like no one was going to yeah. these movies. And yeah, so like into an already hostile landscape comes three incredibly unique, excessively queer horror films. Mm-hmm. Like, these films, it, it's honestly shocking to me that Hellraiser connected with people because you see what happened with Nightbreed and you see what happened with this movie. And I would say, like, Lord of Illusions is his least controversial film. But it's also his least well-known. and I, It's definitely his least well-known. I would even say least liked because even though, yes, you and I may prefer this to Nightbreed, I think that the, I think, yeah, the common consensus is, oh, well, there's, as we said, more going on in Nightbreed. So, like, this one <laughs> is just kind of, like, left in the dust. Yes, yeah. I think Nightbreed is thematically richer. Lord of Illusions, I would almost argue, is more queer, though. Oh, it 100% is. Um, Or maybe it's just more more obviously queer like the queer agenda of this film is on the fucking surface there's no subtext here i'm i'm excited to post the article announcing this episode on bloody disgusting to see (laughs) to see if we get any like y'all are reaching like it's not there's nothing explicitly queer about it and i'm gonna i have quotes from clive barker i'm gonna be like you know what here you go here you go here you go (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, coming back to that uh, radio interview that you mentioned, he literally says there are two films in here. One for straight viewers, which is the noir d'amour love story investigation, and then the queer... I hesitate to call it a love triangle because I feel like it's unrequited love that goes between three people. (laughs) He describes it as a homoerotic menage a trois. And see, and this is why... He gets the written word because he is so much more eloquent than me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to belabor the point because we have a whole film to talk about. But all that to say, I, I couldn't pass up an opportunity to talk about Clive Barker. And if people haven't read his work, seen his other films, you owe it to yourself 
as part of Pride Month, do your fucking queer history, due diligence, seek out some Clyde Barker and enrich your horror life. Yes. Um, and I, I do want to read out one quote that, um, I mean, I, I, two quotes actually that he said about this film. And I, I actually, I think it's a good, it, it'll be a good segue for us to get into the film. But basically, um, he said, I want as many people as possible to know that these imaginings come from a gay man who's happy to be gay. One who's making work which will be read by straight readers and enjoyed by straight readers. I add nothing special for gays in my fiction, but they are part of the world I create and constructively so. That's one quote. But then he also says, I think you need a queer reading of this movie to get it. Oh, my God. I love <laughs> so it. So it's almost like, okay, you straight listeners, like uh, you straight viewers, like, yeah, you, you can watch it and like you'll enjoy the movie, but you're not really going to get it unless mm-hmm. you see the queerness in this film. Yeah, I mean, I I think this film is far less interesting without the queer elements in it. Like, it's it's not that they're difficult to see. Like, if you're not, if you're a straight person, you will be able to see them. Particularly as we begin to point them out, you you may have already picked up on them. But it richens the film. This film becomes so much more interesting with the queer elements compared to the more conventional noir magic film that is without. I will say too, and this is kind of maybe, well, no, it'll be a part of the queerness. I actually wouldn't have minded it if Dorothea was still revealed to be like a villain, if she was like a femme fatale. Mm-hmm. Because as we'll discuss, the climax of this movie, I mean, she gets some moments of agency and it, that's great. I love that. But she's still at the end of the day, a damsel in distress. And yeah, I do think that giving her the villain turn, like, I mean, we know that Famke Jansen can do villainy. Like, mm-hmm. GoldenEye came out the same year this came out. <laughs> and if y'all, if y'all have not seen fucking GoldenEye, watch it just for her, because she is fantastic. Well, and it's like polar opposite performances. You can see it's very clearly like the same actress, like her cadence and her speaking tone are the mm-hmm. almost exact same 180 turn in terms of characters. Like, they are completely opposite. <laughs> oh, Yes, absolutely. And granted, like I think Goldeneye is the reason why she made a name for herself playing bitches. You know, mm-hmm. she she's the jewel thief in Deep Rising. She's the bitchy wife in House on Haunted Hill. I think she's better suited for it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if it wasn't for Jean Grey, like, she'd probably still be get, like typecast in those roles. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway. Okay. Let's dive into this movie. Okay. So, Lord of Illusions comes out August twenty fifth, nineteen ninety five. Released by Metro Goldwyn Mayer, MGM. <sighs> August. <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird. Um, we are looking at a runtime with a theatrical cut of 109 minutes, and director's cut is 121 minutes. It opens in the number five... Oh, this is actually important, too. It opens the week after Mortal Kombat. Hmm. And Mortal Kombat decimated box office competition. So, yeah. this opened in the number five slot with $4.8 million, and it ends up grossing $13.3 million. Again, against that $11 million budget. I will say that $11 million, like, we've commented on, like, the, how the effects look in this film. I, I would argue that minus one particular one that we'll get to when, like, we talk about it, for nineteen ninety five, I thought these effects looked fine. Yeah, and if I I mean I'm interested to hear which effect you're specifically talking about because mm-hmm. there was one in there that was so reminiscent of what I was seeing on television and in other movies that as soon as I saw it, it brought back this wave of nostalgia. Like it's not a good effect and yet i was like oh my god 1995 i feel you so strong right now yeah i mean like they look like effects like they don't look real but again given the time period i also think even like just the transfer of the film like again look at this movie and then look like the actual look like the the visual of the of the scream compared Mm -hmm. to scream 
which came out a year later, Scream looks like, for me, like it was made today, whereas this looks like a product of the 90s. Yeah, like, I I really do think that there's a first half of the 90s and then a back half. Yeah. And, I mean, maybe it's just that it's cheaper to make a low-budget slasher with a bunch of CW kids. I mean, WB kids at yeah. the time. But these more ambitious films where they had to build really elaborate sets or they were out filming in the desert or, you know, I I think of this film, I think of um, Tales from the Crypt. Like oh, yeah. these films, they have a similar kind of slightly gritty, slightly grainy mm-hmm. authenticity to them. Like they're not polished. Yes. And granted, that may be what, because some people don't like that polished look and I get that, but mm-hmm. you know, we live in a digital age now, so everything's polished. It's, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't go overseas from what I can tell. If it did, I don't have any box office numbers. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, we're looking at a 61% with a 5.43 out of 10. The reviews for this film were fine. I mean, I, definitely better than Nightbreed. But Barker did say that um, he did read some profoundly homophobic reviews, specifically from the Midwest, uh, when this film came out. Uh, and there were personal attacks against him in them and his gayness. Yeah, when I saw that, I tried to hunt them down. I will confess, if you go looking for reviews of this film, there's like virtually none available. Like you can look at the Rotten Tomatoes, but there's no links to any of those existing reviews. So Mm -hmm. you can read Roger Ebert's, you can read, I think there's a variety one, there's like one or two other ones, and then all the rest of them, there's no links available. So I was so curious to know what these reviews were saying. I mean, he paints a, a fairly obvious picture, yeah. but I'm just wondering, I mean, I again, I think this is really fascinating and also very telling, right? Like this is a snapshot into what queer and horror, and I'm separating them in specifically, yeah. what they looked like at this time period. Like I can't imagine Chris Landon making a movie now and somebody saying, oh, I ain't watching this gay dude's movie. Like, this gay shit. Yeah, like, it's the kind of thing, I I mean, they might have been small reviews from maybe individuals or smaller papers, but again, like, can you imagine seeing homophobia in a film review? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, know, sorry. and this no, is like... No, I can't, but... No. <laughs> but, like, this is the shit that Clyde Barker took because he was a publicly out figure. Yep. So thank you, Clive Barker, for helping to pave the way for more queer horror. Exactly. Um, We are looking at a letterbox score of 6 out of 10. Um, Yeah, Barker directed the film. Uh, It is his third and final one. Uh, He also wrote it, which is important. The score for the film, which didn't particularly stand out for me, um, but I know that some people have pointed out that they love it, um, it is Simon Boswell, and he has done such acclaimed films like Phenomena, Hmm. Stage Fright, the Michel Suave one, not the um, 2014 musical, (laughs) Demons 2, and Hackers. Oh my god, Hackers. There's another film that's like, oh yes, quintessential mid-90s film. <laughs> also random, the cinematographer Ron Schmidt, um, who has done a lot of TV work in the past 20 years, specifically on The Shield and The Walking Dead, but he also shot the film Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College. <laughs> I'll confess, I've not seen the later Ghoulies films. One was good. <laughs> my husband loves Ghoulies Goes to College. It is insane. I I do not. <laughs> uh, maybe I should check it out. <laughs> I, it might be one of those ones where if you didn't see it as a kid, you're not going to love it. Right. But, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of those. Anyway, take us away, Joe. 
All right. So after an opening text outlining the two worlds of magic, the credits roll over slow pans of flaming garbage bones in the Mojave Desert. The year is 1982, and cult leader Nix, Daniel Von Barken, names himself the Puritan to his followers. Okay, so unfortunately, Daniel Von Barken is uh, he, he is no longer with us, but... Mm -hmm. My point of reference for him is the faculty. Yeah, I was trying to remember. I I knew him from the faculty. I feel like he was on some other like television shows or something, and this felt like a weird departure. I mean, I, I don't. He may have been. Um, I, I, he he did a lot of small film roles because he's in Silence of the Lambs. He's in Basic Instinct. He's in Thinner. And yeah, he's the this is the test guy in the faculty. Right. Okay, so you know what? Scratch that. I don't know him from television then. It must just be of these smaller other kind of very memorable roles. Like when you say, oh yeah, he's in the faculty, I guarantee you a bunch of people are just like, yes, he is. Got it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I actually think he's also quite great in this in oh, yeah. part because he's got almost a comedic sensibility about him. Yes. I don't know if you agree with but me on that. Well, I mean, and that also may be attributed to Barker's direction. Honestly, I don't like that he's not in this movie more. Oh, 100%. It, the film suffers because Nix is a really dynamic personality, and he brings a lot of the conflict well, to the film. it doesn't work for me, and maybe not for you. Again, for you noir lovers out there, I know you mm. love the Scott Bakula stuff. <laughs> I actually don't mind a lot of the middle sections of the film, but I do enjoy... Bacula, I do like noir, and to be honest, I kind of like a lot of the magic stuff in this film. Like, the world feels interesting to me. I do too. I, I think, honestly, for me, it's mostly the scenes between Harry and Valentine, a good chunk of which also were director's cut material, and that's like the extra character development that Barker was talking about. Right. I find those, like, I, fall, I almost fell asleep, like, watching some of those scenes. There. Also, I'm going to gently correct you. It is Valentin, not Valentine. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's no E. No, 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 but... <laughs> um, just so you know, uh, in Spain, the I is pronounced E. Oh, really? Yes. But like Dorothea, the whole movie, she's like, Valentin, Valentin. She's white. <laughs> 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 so, anyway. uh, but no, but in GoldenEye, um, what, what's the Hagrid guy's name? Robbie Coltrane. Yes, no, I, I can't remember his character name, though. It, it is Valentine. Oh, so maybe you're just used to hear when, maybe you're used to her saying that and hearing. Maybe. Listeners, let us know. Oh, <laughs> also, Fanky Jensen's in two movies with a character named Valentine. Right? <laughs> in the same year. It it was we were hard pressed for names in 1995. Clearly, <laughs> um, but yes, yes. So Nix is so he has declared himself to be the Puritan to these followers. They are completely infatuated with him. So let's cut outside as we uh, touch base with Butterfield Barry Dell Sherman. Gay. Holy tamoli! So our <laughs> introduction to Butterfield. He is. He's a he's a tall, very skinny, slightly disheveled looking man. He's sitting on a porch. He is wearing short shorts that could be described as a thong. And a crop top in 1982. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he's made to look a little twinky here. He does not look twinky when we fast forward 13 years. Mm -mm. But I was literally like, oh, there, there's our gay. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, is, so I haven't seen this film 
in a little bit, but I watched it with my sister all the fucking time back in the 90s. I remembered Butterfield as a character. I was like, oh yeah, the henchman character. The minute he shows up on screen on this rewatch, I'm like, holy shit, how was I missing this character the whole time? So gay. And Cl- Barker does say, he says, oh, it's not explicitly mentioned, but I mean, Butterfield's gay. Holy, like, holy <laughs> shit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> super gay super gay super gay super gay i love him and i love his weird eye i yes i love it there this feels like the kinds of little touches that you would get on henchman characters almost coming back to james bond level mm-hmm. henchman characters right where they they've always got a weird little thing that sets them apart from everybody else I and I like it because that feels very like you know comic book villain rogues gallery where it's like oh you yes. have like that one tra- or James Bond villains you know they have like the mm-hmm. one trait I I fucking love it I, it's yeah. that's my favorite <laughs> yeah okay so Butterfield is more or less keeping eye uh, he's keeping an eye out he's the lookout for this uh, cult group and he sees that there's a car coming up the road and in this car is Swan played by Kevin J O'Connor who is being he- real extra from the get-go he's very agitated he's quite angry <laughs> he has a couple of friends with him they are armed they're going to storm the compound because they need to rescue a young girl that Nix has abducted and will apparently sacrifice okay if i, if I just miss this i'll cut it out okay. what is his plan like he wants to sacrifice her for what okay So, the plan here is never revealed, but the interpretation is the girl has been abducted to lure Swan back. Because Swan was taught by Nyx, Mm -hmm. and Nyx is the, uh, and Swan is, because as the end of the film reveals, (laughs) he didn't really need to kill her, he could have just killed all of his cultists. Yes, exactly. Uh, Okay. Well, I mean, he needed to kill the cultists at the end because he needed to pay a debt to come back from the grave. Because technically he'd been sort of dead for 13 years. Because he says Swan is the only one, like, worthy enough to have his power or something. Mm -hmm. And also because he's fucking in love with Swan. So gay. Gay for Swan, man. Hashtag gay for Swan. Yep, gay for Swan. (laughs) There's our episode subtitle. There we go. (laughs) So Swan is here to collect this girl and prevent her from getting abducted. They are all former members of this cult who have presumably walked away. They have uh, escaped the indoctrination process and now they're coming back. Uh, So they know what they're heading into. They know that these disciples are dangerous, that they can't be trusted. You know, we see Jennifer Desiderio, played by Sheila Tusi, get her hand stabbed because uh, she's not paying attention. That's a really good effect. Uh, I I winced when that happened. It hurts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do want to say, so this, what is essentially a cold open, even though it takes place after the opening credits, Mm -hmm. it is 14 minutes. It is awesome. It feels like a climax. Like, and that we essentially get this same climax at the end, only double the length, but it's still awesome again. (laughs) Yeah. I think it proves the power of these images, right? Like, there's something super compelling about a cult at the best of times. Yeah. And then this cult, like, I think what one of the things I really like about this is that this cult feels dangerous. They do. And when we get to some stuff later, we'll get to really see that. Now, mm-hmm. I do want to posit this, and I don't know if I would like this or not, but if we didn't have this cult open and we just opened with, like, being introduced to Bacula... Right. 
Tabacula. Tobacco. Tobacula, because <laughs> um, he's always smoking. It would give the film more of a mystery feel. Because, again, if you don't have this cold open, you mm-hmm. don't know what's going on. And so I wonder if it would have involved me more to like mm. try to piece together what was happening in the film. Oh, it uh, narratively, it's 100% a problem. Because this film tells you everything that you need to know. So then watching bacula pick up the pieces for like an hour you're like well we already know we know who nix is we know what the deal is we know everybody's lying when when, when they revealed to us like who who famke jensen really is i was like was that not like common knowledge did we not <laughs> did mm-hmm. we not know that <laughs> yeah brian turned to me like 20 minutes in he's like so that's the girl i'm like oh you're not supposed to know this yet <laughs> <laughs> so i mean again i i would hate to lose the opening 14 minutes but i do think that narratively that the film would work better if it was more of a mystery yeah it it's tricky right because i think of this in the same way that i think about scream where you're really starting your film off with a great opener like you're sucking the audience in giving them gore giving them tension and giving them great characters and then Unfortunately, you've got to then pull it back and say, okay, and also here's our protagonist. Right. But the difference in Scream is, though, is that we don't know who Ghostface is and we don't yeah. know Drew Barrymore's relationship to him or them. Yeah, because this this film is ultimately we're following an investigation, but we already know the outcome of it. So right. There is no mystery for us to discover. It's watching Demore figure out the mystery, which, which yeah, doesn't so. work maybe as much for some people. Mm hmm. Yeah. So uh, in this group, we also have Quaid, played by Joseph Lattimore. Lattimore? Sure. Lattimore. And uh, yeah, so they're really the most important people. They ultimately get into this sacrifice room where the girl is being kept. There's a baboon. Uh, A mandrill. Mandrill. Okay. That's terrifying. Yep. Yep. Uh, there for no reason than just just have an imagery, but it works. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there was going to be more to do with it, but they couldn't get a prosthetic mandrel to look convincing enough, so they had to cut a sequence with it. Mm, that makes sense. There's also a legitimately terrifying as fuck hanging effigy in the middle of the room. Yes, it almost looks like a giant rib cage, like mm-hmm. but covered in gore. Yeah, and and this is like. If you've seen Hellraiser, you're kind of like, oh, shit, that looks familiar. It is very much like Barker likes to play with bodies in this regard. Like, he's not afraid to show what the insides look like. And in this case, you're right. It looks like a giant ribcage that you can hang someone in. And the fact that we actually see Nick's in there, like, he rotates around. Oh, I mean, that's later, but... (laughs) It's just good. Like, it's it's really rich, vivid, upsetting imagery. Yeah. So, Nick's immediately... <laughs> Swan sucks. <laughs> we should just put that up front. <laughs> Swan sucks, and Nick gets into his head immediately. Literally. Here's your first taste of some queer imagery, folks. We've got a man literally penetrating another man's head with his fingers. Or just fingering like... his ear holes. There we go. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that's someone's kink. No, but it, it, it is very sexual because even, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the looks of, well, okay, because Barker likes to toe the line between pleasure and pain. That's what Hellraiser is, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have Swan giving us these looks of pain, but it also could be seen as looks yes. of ecstasy. Yes, and we'll, we'll find out, I mean, we get a visual representation in this director's cut of what happens when you 
when you are on the receiving end of Nix's vision. So you you get to see what people look like on the inside, kind of like at the end of the world. I like these effects, though. I called it the skin peeling off effect. I don't know a better way to put it. <laughs> but it, Yeah, they basically all... shed their skin like a husk, and it's a wet alien looking organism underneath right but it's like clearly like whatever cgi they were using in the 90s or like whatever yep. kind of effect it was and it doesn't look great but no. it's I, I again 495 i was like you know what that's kind of impressive i like that mm -hmm. and it, it, it works because it's so clearly hallucinatory like the edges of the framing like start to get a little bit blurred so you get the impression that what you're seeing is not reality yeah so swan is sort of down for the count because of these visions but because nix has been distracted doing this he's left himself open so he is shot three times once by the girl once by quaid once by jennifer and this allows them he's still not dead he's he's just kind of momentarily down for the count mm -hmm. and this allows swan to then bind him with an iron mask contraption that has blood activated screws when this is happening i was like oh i'm gonna like this movie like this, yeah. this yeah. was so awesome this was also um an issue with the mpaa basically when, when swan is biting his finger and pouring blood on the screws in order to drill the mask in um that whole bit was basically like like shots of the blood were just cut out so i think the mask is still in the theatrical cut but a lot of the shots and the close-ups of the screws are removed yeah, I, I remember that you can very clearly understand what's happening. I don't remember that we ever see Swan like bite his finger. So I think you just see the screws going in. Um, right. It, I mean, it's just one of those things where you're like, this is why the MPAA can eat a bag of dicks. Well, and that's a more quote unquote forgivable cut, like cutting out the entire like fingering the head, which apparently that wasn't even the MPAA. It was for pacing issues. Oh, God. And I'm like, if you're going to cut some shit, leave that in for pacing. <laughs> it's like, what? You think you're spoiling the end of the film? No, you're actually, you're, you're establishing what <laughs> Nyx can do. You're right. establishing your fucking villain. <sighs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so. Nix is now silenced. He can no longer speak, which of course is part of his power, and it's very culty in that regard. And the group is like, "Okay, so we're going to bury this body and call it a day." And we, and where we would normally get a title card, though, we get to see Butterfield run away, sit on a rock, or perch himself on a rock, and scream. Cut to black. Yeah. I do wish we had the cut to title card here. I thought that would have been a really cool way to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit unusual that we open with the title card and then we get the out. The opening text, which doesn't make sense in the context of this opening. Mm -hmm. Like, it almost would have worked to have saved that. Well, and that's why I think, though, that watching it again, knowing what this... Because, again, I mean, I walked into... The, I didn't know what this was about. I didn't read... Sometimes I'll try to read the, read the Wikipedia plot summary before we watch a movie just so I can, like, have a knowledge of it going in. Mm-hmm. I did not do that with this movie. <laughs> and so watching... First time watching this, you are putting a lot of pieces together. Yeah. Like, what kind of film is this going to be? And this opening tells you it's going to be a certain type of film, and then it pulls back. Right. Yeah. So we flash forward to New York 13 years later. So we are now in the present, 1995. And we meet Private Dick Harry Damore, played by Scott Bakula. And very quickly, it is established that he has ties to the occult, and he is still haunted by a recent exorcism. Ooh. Which, honestly, all the flashbacks to his exorcism were giving me major shades of The Serpent and the Rainbow. Oh, okay. Yeah, which would have come out before this, right? Yeah, I think that was like 88, or around okay. that time. 
I'll confess that, that this to me is one of those classic Barker dropped lines. Like you a hundred percent think that his experiences with this boy, with the exorcism, with the touch, the darkness more is going to ultimately play a larger part in his journey. And instead it's just like, yeah, he's got some ties to the occult. Well, and going back to cutting out the opening scene, you make your cold open that exorcism as your introduction mm-hmm. to Bacula. Yeah. I mean, maybe it makes it a more conventional film, and that's not Barker's style. Yeah, which I get. It's just one of those things where this imagery, again, is very confronting. It's very exciting. Like, it, you know, it it has a certain essence of Hellraiser and also Nightbreed. Mm -hmm. Um, And it looks good. Like, you kind of wish that there was a little bit more of it. Because you really only see it twice. Yeah. Yeah. So... We're, we're introduced to Harry. He immediately gets a case that sends him out of New York and over to L.A., which almost begs the question, like, okay, did, like, is it that important that we saw that he was from New York? Because <laughs> <laughs> the short story is actually set in New York. Well, as we discussed in our Hellbent and Killer Unicorn episode last week, yes, it is very important because they are different people. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Uh, and, and kudos to this film for actually making L.A. seem a little bit more sinister. I mean, I'm watching mm-hmm. the current season of Penny Dreadful, and that show cannot find the scares in Los Angeles because it's so fucking sunny all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so Harry goes to L.A., and he's, you know, he's on like a routine idiot case where a guy's trying to claim insurance money, and he's following him. There's a little bit of comedy banter, a little bit of dick, if you're interested in that. Uh I am, and I wrote it down. <laughs> I was like, we got some titties. and Because uh, with this and the movie that we're covering next week, which I won't spoil yet, there are also instances of women whose breasts are out, but like their tops are still up. So it's mm-hmm. like their breasts are partially out, like hanging over their tops. And it just looks so uncomfortable to me. Yeah, it's um, it's not sexy either. No, it's not. But we do get this guy's ass. And yeah, some pubes and... Mm-hmm all like kind of some dick yeah <laughs> it's it's foreshadowing for things to come yeah so he he's trailing this guy this guy leaves he goes to a fortune teller and then immediately runs out and this is really where demora starts to get sucked into the case because he stumbles onto something much larger which is the yeah. murder of quade from the opening so quade is 13 years older he's now running this fortune teller shop when harry goes into this room he is confronted by a very interesting tweaked up gentleman. I called him Metal Teeth. <laughs> Sounds like another Bond villain. <laughs> it's Jaws. <laughs> I should just call him Jaws. <laughs> it's White Trash Jaws. White Trash Jaws. There we go. Meth Head Jaws. Yeah, like this this guy I think is very clearly meant to be on PCP. They don't talk about it, but the way that he can punch holes in doors, that he can recover automatically from fights, that's yeah. like, I do not have pain centers. I am high as a fucking kite. But you're burying the lead because we are reintroduced to Butterfield, who is wearing... Oh my god. These gold, either spandex or leather pants mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. constantly show the outline of his dick. I yes. mean, at first I was like, you know, because like leather pants, like, you know, they can get bunched up and you're like, okay, whatever. No, 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 no. no it no, was no. full like cock and balls. I was just like, you know what, Clive Barker, you know what you're doing. And I approve. I'll confess. I'm pretty sure these are, he wears, I think, women's clothes and or kind of sex clothes. Yeah. I mean, I think, yes. Yeah. 
He does. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, like they, they all have that fetish wear to them. They are clothes that are probably not meant to have a penis in them. Mm-mm. Yeah, there there is not that space for it, and as a result, the the, the penis must go somewhere, mm-hmm. and that is out towards our faces constantly at so all I times. Think he, I think he wears it for the rest of the movie. <laughs> he does. I mean, he wears it well. He looks good in them. Whenever I saw updated Butterfield, I was like, I mean, girl, you're kind of a fashion icon. <laughs> New Butterfield. <laughs> New Butterfield. New Butters. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, so Butterfield is there. He has now become an expert in some kind of knife play chakra because Quaid has approximately eight knives in his neck and chest and face. <laughs> Well, it's mimicking that tarot card. Right. But yeah. it, it it reminded me, because this would have come out seven years after Child's Play, but it reminded me of the scene in Child's Play when Chucky kills his black voodoo guy with a voodoo doll. <laughs> Very on the nose, yeah. It, yeah. Didn't love it, but whatever. I mean, I think, again, this makes for an interesting looking scene, right? Because the it's lit by candles mm-hmm. the table is set for a reading we've got cards there and then we've just got this man sitting at the end of it with knives all through him but and he's still alive and it's horrifying and i'll reiterate this film and imagery like it's perfection yeah it's good like you just you just keep wishing for a little bit more of it mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that's a, the gore hands in us it is, but I mean, it's again, you're coming off a Hellraiser, and well, because Nightbreed isn't even really that gory, too, especially compared to Hellraiser. But no, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I I would say it's Hellraiser than this, and then Nightbreed in terms well, of because this imagery. feels like a combination of Hellraiser and Nightbreed. Like that's the thing. Yes. Like Hellraiser is something, Nightbreed is something. This is like an amalgamation of the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, directly feeding from both. Yeah. So the tweaked up guy goes out a window. And Butterfield kind of slinks away. And I do use the word slink. Because the way he moves is cat-like. It's like a dancer. She's she's got moves. Oh, I'm surprised he wasn't in the showgirls number that we're about to come to. (laughs) Oh my god. I have so much to say. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So, okay. We've got a dead guy. We've got a Clea Duvall-like police lady who shows up another couple of times. Dude, dude, dude. (laughs) My husband literally goes, is that Clea Duvall? And I was like, no, 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 no. No, No, but it might as well be. But it might as well be. Yeah, this this is Clea Duvall from now traveling back in time to 1995 and that, making a cameo appearance. That's exactly, exactly what it is. This is what got her her role in the faculty. Exactly. And that I'm a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> this is how she established her cred. I will become this lady. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we'll leave that murder scene behind and we cut to now Swan. He lives in a giant mansion because he is an illusionist and he is married to a woman named Dorothea, played by Famke. Which, and I do love this, um, Clive Barker apparently picked her photo out of the hundreds of initial submissions and just declared, this is Dorothea. Yeah, it's interesting because in the book, she's like... Basically, all of her descriptors are how fucking hot she is. So it kind of makes sense that you end up with Famke Jansen because she is, I mean, she's a former model. She is gorgeous in this movie. She looks like old Hollywood glamour, particularly in the scene when he meets her in the graveyard. Well, her hair. Well, yeah, that's the thing, too. I I wonder if he was also trying to trick, like, readers who thought that she was going to be a femme fatale type character. 
Oh. And that's why she's kind of dressed. Like, even her hairstyle. Yeah. Which I don't know if I love, but it looks good on her. Yes. Yes to both counts. It's it's a very 1995 cut, but I think it works. Yeah. But you, you are right, because if we think of noir, we think of femme fatale. This movie evokes the 1940s but it's obviously not set like it's not a period piece by any stretch of the imagination Mm -hmm. but i do think you're meant to wonder how much dorothea knows in the first half of this film and i wonder if that's the intent with keeping her identity a secret is Mm -hmm. it because it's like oh she's keeping a secret maybe she's evil oops no she's actually the victim from the beginning (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) all very noir yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, So they find out about Quaid's death, and Swan seems a little bit shook, and Dorothea just immediately calls in Valentin, who is played by Joel Sweeto, and this is Swan's butler, who I'm also convinced is in love with Swan. Yeah, I I agree, because (laughs) that's why he he and Harry don't get along, because Mm -hmm. Harry's impeding on his love interest. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So she wants Valentin to hire Demore because she has seen his picture in the paper. So uh so he goes and gets Demore en route to uh the graveyard where he's going to meet Dorothea for the first time. We also get this backstory where Valentin helpfully distinguishes the difference between illusionists who are associated with trickery, and he put, he does a little sleight of hand magic. Oops, sorry. Blech. It's, illusions. it's hard. Yes, illusions. He does a sleight of hand illusion in the car, whereas magic is magic like for real. So the kinds of things that we saw Nick's do, magic. Yes. The kinds of things that you see David Copperfield or Chris Angel do, illusion. So um, we get this meet cute in the graveyard. I did love, again, <laughs> Brian's watching this with me and he he sees the way that the scene in the graveyard is shot. And he's like, does Scott Bakula have a halo lighting because he looks like he's glowing, whereas Famke Jansen is just kind of like, yeah, she's there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how you know it's a gay director, uh, because he's lighting the man as an angel. And the woman's just like a pile of trash. A little bit. I mean, we, we glanced over it, but our introduction to Harry is that he he awakens sweaty from this nightmare. And, like, the camera wants to fuck Scott Bakula through this yeah. entire movie. Mm-hmm. And and it's very funny, if you do actually manage to track down that interview with the Australian uh, radio, I think Clive Barker says no less than five times how sexy Scott Bakula is. Oh, I mean, yes. <laughs> he, he wanted to bone him. Yes. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, apparently not, not gay, despite the fact that he appeared on the cover of Playgirl. He is, uh, I think he's been married a couple of times, has a couple of kids. So. A girl can Can't dream. win them all. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Demore is on the case because he finds Dorothea attractive, so he gets the invite to go see Swan's last show. And this is our, our sort of next big show, show-stopping moment, right? So we yeah. get to go to this big theater. It's uh, Swan's last show in L.A., and it's a big performance piece that looks somewhere between Showgirls and a Britney Spears concert. And what's funny is Showgirls would come out exactly one month after this movie. So you mentioned to me, what the fuck is up with this choreography? Again, I remember that there was a show. I didn't remember choreography. The dancing looks uh, exactly the same as Showgirls. The costuming looks exactly the, the same. The design looks like Showgirls. <laughs> yeah. 
Like Swan comes out of, he might as well come out of a fucking volcano. I was going to say, you might as well stop a fucking volcano where that goddamn red sand clay glass tube thing is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the dancers, there are women that I see in the beginning. It feels like they just disappear and then just, it's all men. It's all men showing their butts wearing thongs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, and draping themselves over one another. It's Oh, it's so horny and I love it. Oh, yeah. This is a thirsty movie, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> See, no, literally all this, uh, up until this point, like, I am here. Like, honestly, it's through his death, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Then it's like when we, that that's kind of when the movie starts losing me. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we watch a little bit of the show. We see a new illusion. Dorothea confirms that this is a new one that she hasn't seen, which involves Swan dodging falling swords that fall from a chandelier of course it goes poorly he is then very publicly killed <laughs> i i do like that this is later revealed to be an elaborate ruse and he just killed himself publicly in front of what appear to be thousands of people <laughs> this is magic obviously but i actually thought this was shot very well and edited mm-hmm. very well and i loved yes. like it wasn't gory but it was bloody and i really yes. appreciated that I really enjoyed the kind of slow motion shots of each individual sword mm-hmm. falling. It's suspenseful, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and and the, the the final sword though, because it's like the camera holds on that last sword as it mm-hmm. falls on him, and it's fantastic, right through the gut. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. Okay, so he's dead, and Demur immediately suspects foul play. So he goes, he checks the rig to see if it's been tampered with, and just immediately runs afoul of both our our PCP tweaker and Butterfield with cock so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's it's a backstage fight. It's it's fine. Um, it's I, okay. I do. So apparently the so when Methy, what are we calling him? <laughs> I can't remember anymore. He looks like Methy. Oh my god, Methy Jaws. <laughs> Methy Jaws. Okay. When, when Methy Jaws gets killed, um, the shots of so okay. I read somewhere where that it was blood, like because he basically gets stabbed with a tube. That it was blood pouring out of his back. I oh. thought it was the red sand. It is okay. Cool. That's what I thought. Th- those shots are not in the theatrical cut. Those are only director's cut oh, stuff. But really? I loved it. It was so cool looking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It just it it looks really good. It feels like an original death, and it's kind of fun because it feels like an immediate callback because we just saw somebody get impaled through the stomach. Yes, he gets fucked by this sand tube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just kind of see him like standing there in climax in his little like tights too. Yeah, what kind of thug wears tights? <laughs> Honestly, I th- Butterfield was probably hard at this point because I think his cock outline was even bigger than it was in the last scene. Jesus Christ, <laughs> so much, so much visible dick line. Whew, okay, it's getting hot in here. <laughs> <laughs> So let's take this action to the Magic Castle, which is apparently a real thing in Los Angeles. Magic moments. <laughs> oh, that was a choice, which I'm going to assume is the actual Magic Castle's theme song. I, I don't know. Do we want it to be? It's kind of. It's creepy. But it's something. We do get um lovely character actor Vincent Schiavelli in this scene who... Has done a shit ton of work, but I mostly mm-hmm. know him from Batman Returns. 
Yes. Yeah, I think he also appeared briefly in an X-Files episode, if I'm not I mistaken. Mean, he's one of those. But he's had like two books written about him. It's insane. Um, really? Sadly, okay. also no longer with us. But yeah. yeah, he's one of the most recognizable character actors of like the 80s and 90s. And his bit in this is really fun. I do want to briefly highlight the fact that you did send me a text asking if the old man that Demora meets <laughs> was like... <laughs> Stanley, <laughs> a low rent Stanley. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was Stanley, and I was like, "That's cool. He's making cameos before the Marvel movies." Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be him. I tried to look in the cast, couldn't really figure out who it is. But it's if it's not, let's just imagine it is. It, it is not him. So he he is allowed entrance into these these private meetings where Vinovich, who is Vincent Schiavelli, is mm-hmm. holding court with the Magic Circle and. This is where it's a bit of an exposition dump, but it's also the kind of classic Barker, let's talk erudite for five seconds. And yeah. So we're talking about saints and messiahs and how they were all illusionists, but they can reproduce miracles if asked to. And Demore at one point actually says, oh, does their work have associations to heaven and hell? Which, of course, is like the Hellraiser line. So, Mm -hmm. you know, me jizzing off in the corner a little bit. (laughs) Uh, And Vinovich clarifies that we're actually talking about divinity and trickery. So really, these are the themes of this movie is its association of what is trickery and what is true magic and what are the associations with something like divinity because of course this is what nix fashions himself to be when he proclaims himself to be the puritan well i mean even going back to nightbreed you know where it's like oh the beast the monsters are your outcasts those are your queers um in this one like all of the men that are part of this homoerotic menage a trois Mm -hmm. um well, I guess, we, no, never mind, I, that, my through line is gone, because I was like, oh, they're all magicians in some shape, way, or form, but Damore is not. Damore is not, but he's also the odd man out in this film. Like, he's constantly the one who doesn't know what's happening, and really, at the end of the day, he's kind of the least effective. Like, he literally needs Swan to help him defeat the bad guy. Yeah. And Dorothea, come to think of it. Listeners, y'all can enlighten me. You know, if y'all have read more of Barker's work, because I've never read any of Barker's work with the Demore character, right. if he is more compelling in those in the written word, <laughs> mm. let me know. I just don't find him particularly compelling in this movie. It's weird because Barker is actually on record as saying that Scott Bakula is the embodiment of the character, and that mm-hmm. actually informed then the subsequent book, The Scarlet Gospel, which is the one I mentioned where Demore faces off against Hellraisers. Yeah. Well, the high priest. Yeah, the high priest. And that was written like five years ago. Yeah. But it seems like Barker, I think, has some kind of interest in this character. But from what I gathered when I read the short story, he's very much just a private eye. Yep. I- like a private eye with a bad history. And I I won't beat the dead horse. Like I, right. I've made my thoughts on this character very clear. Yeah, I mean he he's the audience surrogate. He's the one who just kind of like moves the investigation forward. The problem is is that because we know what's happening, it's just not as exciting for us. So, yeah. and because he's just a bit more of an abrasive character, it he's not even lovable in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so all of this doesn't really come to anything except for the fact that we learn that there's a room in the magic castle that is locked and there are only three keys, but it presumably hides some secrets that Swan might, uh, 
basically that Demore needs to get access to if he's going to proceed with his investigation. So put a pin in that. It'll come back later. This is a very like Indiana Jones sequence too with, with oh, yeah. this room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're not quite there yet, so we nope. need to get introduced to Billy Who, played by Lauren Stewart, who is an up-and-coming illusionist, so this will be Demore's confidant who will help him break in later, but this is also where Demore first starts to hear of Nick's. So, he fills in Dorothy about the investigation, she hears Nick, she freaks out, Valentin is eavesdropping all the time, he hears Nick's, he freaks out, blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Demore goes back to Quaid, sorry. No, I'm just, I, w- whenever he calls Famke and he's like, Nick, does the name Nick's like, she, she, I actually like her acting in this scene because she like drops the phone, but mm-hmm. she also catches it with her other hand, but she's also like so visibly shaken. I was like, good for you, Famke Jansen. You're yeah. doing a good job acting scared. Yeah. <laughs> Over a phone call, a name on a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if she had been through what she had been through, I'm sure you'd feel the same way. Oh, this, this is so true. Like these characters need therapy not magic <laughs> yeah and this is also the 60th time that she says she didn't marry swan for love yeah oh my god it, it there's your drinky game for this movie <laughs> oh my god yes yes <laughs> yes yes and okay but re- i know we touched on it it is a very inappropriate relationship between them and oh yeah I, yeah it doesn't like hurt the film for me but i'm also just kind of like i i i never particularly ever care about swan very much i do care about her but mm-hmm. then i don't know it's like it's like she moved from one abuser to another and i know that swan doesn't abuse her but she's basically a kept woman in her little prison castle uh yes. with him yeah and she's clearly she clearly has affection for swan but it's also not love because she makes that very evident mm-hmm. and you get the impression that she's had a stunted life as a result like she has never been able to move on from the trauma because every time she sees Swan, she sees her rescuer who she is staying out of. She's staying right. with out of obligation. And like, I, that's not a life that's been lived. I am very glad that the film doesn't give us a scene where like, like where like he guilts her or something into staying mm-hmm. or it's like, Oh no, you need to stay because, or like, remember that time I saved you? Like we at least don't get that, that sense of like maliciousness from Swan. Yeah. But I'm also kind of like, but we aren't really given enough explanation as to why. She, I mean, I get it, you know, she mm-hmm. felt obligated. She is trying to be safe, blah, blah, blah. But I just feel like there's more there that could have been discussed. It's an odd relationship, too, because they're, I mean, the the problem is, is between the heterosexuals, quote unquote, in this film, there is no chemistry. So she has no chemistry with Swan. And even though we're meant to believe he actually does love her because it becomes a giant plot point at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. There's no, I mean, I like Kevin J. O'Connor. I don't think this is his greatest film. Oh, yeah. I He's mean, not doing it, particularly well in terms of, he, he sells the illusion and the magic, but he doesn't sell any kind of human connectivity. Correct. And, and maybe that's the point. Like, that might be the point, but it just doesn't make him a very relatable character. No. But I think also problematically, we're meant to see it as, oh, this is a wrong couple. Like, she is the femme fatale. He is the man who will die. And that way, then she can have this love affair with Demore, who is mm. the private eye. The problem is, is that there's no real chemistry between them either. So that part falls flat as right. well. So, you know, there's a bit where Demore is... Valentin offers to pay him off and Harry refuses because he's so in love with Dorothea. So he goes back to Quaid's, the, the fortune teller guy's scene of the crime. He finds a phone book. 
he's going to track down Jennifer Desiderio because she's kind of the missing link in all of this. If he can find her, he can start to understand who Nyx is and what and everything is happening. This is also your other, like your other expo- exposition scene. You know, mm-hmm. it's, oh, she, he's going to go there. They're going to, she's going to give him some stuff and then obviously get killed immediately. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly what happens, though I do want to briefly highlight the fact that the reason that she is driven to death is because she witnesses a man who is digging a smoky hole next mm-hmm. to the psychiatric ward that she has been staying in. So then she runs into traffic and she's struck and killed by a car. And then there's just a shot of a shirtless construction man who pops out of the hole. I was like, oh, Clyde Barker. <laughs> Like, at every opportunity, topless men, visible dick lines. I love it. A penis is coming out of pucker holes in foreheads. So pucker gay. hole. That word pucker is mm. so gross. Mm. And I think it's because I've seen in porn people say, oh, I love it when that hole puckers. And I'm just uh, like, Ugh! yeah. Yeah. Just swish it around in your mouth for a little bit. Twitch. Just use the word twitch. Like twitch. The winky eye. Ooh. Okay, so Jennifer's dead, and we basically confirmed that Swan and Nix were associated. Nix is maybe behind something. He's a rising force. He's coming back. Everybody's terrified. Let's move on. And this, this is when we get this awesome sequence of all the cultists waking up. Oh, okay. I was going to say the scene in the Magic Castle where we get a booby trap file and a hologram. <laughs> no. So, no. It, so basically, like, we go through, like, three or four different cities, and we see people just standing around dead bodies. And mm-hmm. th- this is director's cut. None of this was in the theatrical cut. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, we have the one guy. It's a USPS worker, and he has his wife. I'm assuming is his wife's body in a closet. We have a woman in Miami who's killed her entire family. Like, you see, like, a, the husband and the, uh, the, the little girl dead at the table. And then she mm-hmm. walks by, and the fucking, like, son's body is on the floor. Yeah. And then we get San Jose, where it's, um yeah, all the venomous snakes. Uh, he, like, released them on his, on his co-worker. Yeah, to which I say, I can understand maybe killing your family because they are a liability. They are going to care whether or not you show up. Did that poor co-worker need to be killed by the snakes? Because <laughs> right. Well, he probably said, can I take it? Can I, can I, I'm going to leave early for the day. And he was like, no. And he was like, okay, well, hold on one second. Let me, <laughs> let me get this snake real quick. Um, we, I need to leave early and also take a bucket of snakes. Is that going to be a problem? We also see him driving on the road trip with all the snakes in the back seat. Yeah. And this, this is a thing. So I love all of this. Okay. It does feel underdeveloped. Like I, don't, mm-hmm. I, I want to know more about this cult. You know, why are we doing? Like, maybe not the grand plan. Why? But like, like okay, so they are in the beginning of the movie. Nix gets buried and is done. So they go and live their lives. But they have this thing. Like they get a calling. They get a letter. <laughs> yeah, they, they they get a letter. <laughs> Come home to your family. Kill but, kill your proper family. Come but back. Like, I, I'm more interested in that than I am with anything happening with Harry at this moment. And I'm just right. because again, we already know where this is going. Yeah, this is I think the most shocking piece of edited footage. Oh. I can understand why because it's like we're killing kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and we don't. It's we don't see the deaths. It, we just see the aftermath. But it is when they revealed the, the kid on the floor. I was just yeah. like, oh, yeah. I mean, you know what I thought. <laughs> Yay. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Dead children! I love a dead child. It's just shocking to me that this, like, this is a good scene. It's an important scene. I I don't think at the end of the day, you don't... 
No, you know what? I was going to say, you could do without this because I guess at the end of the day, you just need to know that the cultists are there, but it doesn't make sense if you don't see them leaving behind their other families and their, their old lives, because why would they just have stayed at this place for 20-something years? Well, here's here's the thing where your plot, your first plot hole might come in. Because yeah, at, at most of the extra stuff up until this point, besides the gore in the opening scene, is like, yeah, it's extra Valentine and Harry stuff. Mm-hmm. This scene with the cultists leaving their homes and the scene that we get with them next where they get to the place and they're just kind of walking around like looking at each other. That's also director's cut material. (sighs) So the first time we see the cultists again after the opening is during the climax. Yeah. So it's like, oh, they just been sitting there the whole time. Yeah, which doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. So I, this is, I I like that this is added in because Mm -hmm. all the stuff with the cultists is great. Yeah. Again, folks, if you can track down the director's cut, yeah, there's a little bit of extra padding, but then this kind of stuff makes it worth it. So worth it. Okay, so as I mentioned, locked room sequence in the Magic Castle. There's a fun Mm -hmm. booby trap thing. It is very Indiana Jones, you're right. There's a hologram, which I'd rather not talk about. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) We don't talk about it, but holy shit. He pulled out the gun, and I was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Who is convinced by this hologram? (laughs) Sir, sir. I will admit that I thought it was a ghost monster. I didn't realize it was a hologram. But even then, I was like, that's not going to work on a ghost monster, dude. But then, of course, it was a hologram. And I was like, well, that's still not going to work on that hologram. Demur needs to watch more Scooby-Doo. Clearly. Clearly. Because it is a Scooby-Doo tactic. A hundred percent. And I hope that you are proud of me bringing that up. I am very proud of you. Because honestly, I didn't even think about it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is this is all the the kind of playful, ooh, illusionists, of course, would have a hologram protecting their secret treasure. <laughs> because why not, right? Yeah. But it also is one of those things where you're just like, okay, but the whole purpose is really just so that we can get a file that shows Nick's with his puckerhead forehead. <laughs> like, okay, I mean, it, I guess, but at the same time... We're getting there anyway. I don't yeah. Know. Well. So let's get back to the action because this is where Demora finally starts to crack down on Dorothea. She she admits that she is the kidnapping victim from the beginning, and it's time for some Cinemax level sexy sex. Okay. So I do have a quote from Barker about the sex scene because it is not a part of the novel. Like they have an attraction in the in the short story, right? But they don't have sex. Mm-hmm. Barker's says, and I quote. I would have allowed. I would not have allowed myself to make a movie that had its roots in noir, in which a woman as beautiful as Famke Jansen was encountered by a man as handsome as Scott Bakula, and they had not at one point locked lips. I mean, it's my duty, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> and also, if I can get Scott Bakula to remove his clothing on set again. <laughs> oh my god. And so this is also a scene that was heavily cut down. Um, I think what was in the theatrical cut is very brief. Yeah. Um. I wouldn't say it's a graphic sex scene, but like no. they're like they look fully nude in their scenes. Correct. Um, yes. And it is some of the worst music I've ever heard in my Ooh. life. Yeah. Apparently it's the up there scene. with the room. Yeah. You yes. Are my yes. Rose. yes. You yes. Are my rose. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, we are not talking about room. We're talking about the room. <laughs> Although room would also apply given what Dorothea has gone through. <laughs> That's also very true. Um, yeah, this sucks. But then we also get that great scene, which is also director's cut only, where he's laying down naked and her head is on his penis. Like just Dick laying hair. on it to hide it. Dick hair. Yeah. Okay, Ugh. so I had questions about this because presumably they have just had sex, mm-hmm. which means like... 
he was inside her, but then oh. she's laying on top of him. So there's res- residual vaginal juices on his penis that are now being transferred to her hair and or exactly. face. Which I think is just what we call the Pantene Pro-V hot oil treatment, right? Oh, that's... You put some thought into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, honestly, I didn't think about that. And now you put it in my head. Um, that's You're welcome. great. Thank you for that. <laughs> It's, see, this to me was actually more sexy than the sex scene. Like, yeah, because I agree. I think there's something highly erotic about two naked people just in the throes of lovemaking or post post coital. Yeah, I don't know. It's not something that you see every day. Like, I was very struck by, wow. Okay, not only are both of them quite naked, but you know this this has a level of intimacy. Like, yeah, these people just fucked, and you know, all that's missing is the cigarette. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I I I feel like maybe that also might be a trait of noir. You know, it's oh, like the the woman on the man, the sheets covering her breast. He's smoking mm. a cigarette. Like ta- they're talking about things, <laughs> case case information. <laughs> yes, <laughs> case information. <laughs> he doubts her. Doesn't know if she's good or bad. Exactly. Oh, I fucked you, but yeah. gosh, what if you're dangerous? But I do I do agree. I I I prefer the post coital stuff to the actual sexing that we get because I don't really love the sexing that we have. Yeah, it, it's not my favorite, but that's okay. But this does lead into what I say, I'm going to say is the bad effect. Yeah, and I'm. this is the one I knew you were going to raise. So we hear noises downstairs. Demore goes, he investigates, and we see it looks like a red figure that is constructed of... Construction paper or origami paper. Yes, yeah. Uh, triangles that kind of flip up and down and if you touch it it scatters into like the wind yeah. and then but then it like catches the, the fire i think looks fine the origami thing looks like total shit it looks right. so bad so the reason that i said this doesn't bother me i mean i fully acknowledge it looks like garbage but yeah. if you go back and you look at things like holographic depictions of human beings in things like the lawnmower man or a tv oh, show no. that i highly encourage people to seek out called profit with adrian pastar they had this kind of feel to the fx work see this is like the langoliers for me oh wow okay so you really fucking hated it <laughs> because you should not be name dropping the langoliers unless you are like oh that's a steaming pile of shit I mean, I, I think I kept seeing people talk about the bad effects, and I was like, you know what, I don't think they're that bad. And then I saw this, and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, girl. So this is the depiction of, like, this is our distinction between illusion and magic, because this, like, this cues Harry that Swan can't be dead, because only someone like Swan could pull off an illusion, yeah. aka well, this is magic. magic. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it was important for them to distinguish it visually from the other kinds of things that we had seen. And I think that's actually why we have a hologram before, because it's like, uh, a hologram, that's an illusion. <laughs> this is magic. Yeah. I agree. I don't think it 100% works. I do actually kind of love it, though, when she touches it and it scatters and goes down the hall and then, like, no, breaks the, the, the flower vase. The idea is there. It's just like they could not get it executed properly. Yeah, I mean... $11 million. <laughs> and you know what? And that's what I'm going to say. For $11 million, which granted would have been about $22 million nowadays, it does look good for that money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it does what it needs to do. It stands out compared to a lot of the other things in this film. It feels very much of the time. 100%. Mm-hmm. 
So, as I mentioned, this is the cue that, of course, Swan is not actually dead. So, Demore opens up the casket. He desecrates the corpse. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, just rips off the jaw of this, like, mannequin corpse. Yeah. And Valentin then confesses, yeah, okay, that deadly illusion was totally fake. Swan's actually alive. Let's cut to the funeral. Because, of course, Swan is such a fucking narcissist that he can't resist seeing the turnout. He has his hair in a ponytail. And he is rocking a Vincent Price mustache. It was a choice. It is a, it was a choice. It is a look. <laughs> and then he almost drops a car on Harry. Yeah, like Harry's like, hey, so you faked your death, but you basically left your wife to hang. And I know about Nick's. And Swan just says, car. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, this gives you all you need to know about fucking Swan because he's just so petty because mm-hmm. he's so jealous that. Like oh, yeah. he's insecure because he knows that that uh, Dorothea didn't marry him for love, and, and because I they guess fucked. this is the first time in Los Angeles that Dorothea has ever been approached by another man. <laughs> yeah, whereas in the short story, you get the impression that not only is Swan stepping out on her, but that she's probably also stepping out on him. Right. Yeah, for sure. But the the movie does not make that turn. No. No, uh, Swan just comes off as very petty. But again, if you wanted to pull the lens back a little bit, you could also argue that he is dealing with a whole shit ton of trauma as well. Like he is technically mm-hmm. a former cultist who has escaped that and then had to go back and kill his oppressor. Yeah, he's Martha Marcy May Marlening it. Yeah, exactly. That is a deep cut and I approve and people should go seek that movie out as well. It's super fucking good. Cult movies. Mm -hmm. Good times. It's actually like the first cult movie we've ever covered, isn't it? Uh, maybe. I won't swear to it, but maybe. I mean, I've been drinking, so I will swear to a lot of things, but I probably (laughs) don't know what I'm even saying. Okay. Okay, so uh, this produces a reluctant team-up. So Demore and Swan, Team Swamore. Sure. No, I'll work on that. But then because we have this new twosome, we have to get rid of the member of the previous twosome, which means Valentin is yeah. going to be removed. Yeah, so thankfully, this is where where things start to pick back up because yeah. it's 100%. Nyx is coming back. We're getting rid of all the players, which means it's time for motherfucking Butterfield to come back. He shows up. He hacks and slash at Valentin a little bit. And he then sits on his face. Sits on his face. The framing of this mm-hmm. shot. Mm-hmm. It is it is Valentin looking up at the sky on the ground with mm-hmm. fucking Butterfield's thighs, like, yes. squeezing his face, basically. <gasps> it, it's so gay. It's also, what does it remind you of? Uh, 100% Xenia on a top. Yes! <laughs> I, I didn't even piece it together until you were, like, sitting on his face. Like, right, yes. <laughs> but, we, I mean, we get, like, a, a G-rated rimming scene i mean yeah it's uh it's uncomfortably sexual i do like the fact that butterfield he's a a highly sexualized character who's not afraid to use it in a menacing way Mm -hmm. which is exciting and dangerous and weird like considering that valentin is queer coded because Mm -hmm. of his relationship to swan and then butterfield is like more or less text yeah this is like this is sexualized threatening and it's kind it of refreshingly weird and i'm here for it yeah i'm i'm t- i mean it, this is when you also get into the whole idea of like oh well queer as the monster as the villain isn't that bad and yes you can make that argument but he's so fun 
Yeah, I mean, Butterfield is clearly not a good guy, but he is fascinating as a character. Yeah, he, he is a richer character than, you know, Harry Damore. <laughs> I mean, he, but just think about it. Like, he could have been such a boring, nothing character. Like, it could have just been, oh, he's got two different colored eyes, and we're going to leave it at that. Mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, okay, so it's revealed when Harry and Swan come back to the house and they discover, you know, oh no, the maid has been killed and Dorothea and Valentin are gone. It's revealed that Valentin is one of the few people left alive who actually knows the location of Nix's body. The capture of Dorothea is extra as well. I mean, obviously she does get captured, but like you don't see it in the theatrical cut. Yeah, I think you see him grab her briefly and that's like it whereas yeah, but... here he full-on he he relics her he gives her a little boob lick yes and like yeah we don't we don't get the moment of her like discovering the housekeeper stabbed in the kitchen or whatever yeah which again is kind of like oh who's that character we've yeah, never met poor valencia the maid before and yet <laughs> wait is that really her name would you just make that up it is her name because we hear oh. Dorothea calling for her in the middle of the night. I thought so, you were being racist. I mean, she is a person of color who exists solely <laughs> to be killed in this movie. So let's call a spade a spade. Okay. This movie does not care for black people or, I mean, we do have an Asian character, but really. Yeah, who is not in this movie anymore? Not. No, we, we will never see Billy Who again. We will never speak of him again. He's it's 1995. Gone. Yeah, I mean, kudos for at least including him, I guess, question yeah. mark. Let's move on. <laughs> All right, so we're now in pursuit. So Valentin and Dorothea are at the mercy of Butterfield. Butterfield makes Valentin dig up Nyx, and then he hacks him up a little bit. So they dig a ditch, uh, pull out Nyx's body, and then we cut back to Swan, who he he gives us a little bit of insight. So this if you're not watching the director's cut, would give you the first indication that if Nyx gets inside your head, he changes your perception. And uh, Swan's description of what people really look like on the inside is jelly and shit. <laughs> okay, Swan. Thanks for that. I'm not gonna lie, I missed that line, but your delivery was on point. <laughs> Just like, I mean, jelly, sure. Shit? Oh, okay. See, I would think shit makes sense, because there is shit inside of your body, but not jelly. But they have a jelly look to them, don't they? I mean, yeah, in Clive Barker's vision, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Uh, okay, so they're they're basically one step behind. They discover Valentin in the hole. Valentin then dies. Blah, who cares? Yeah. Well, let's move back to the cult shack. This is where we see the cult members, and they've all begun to congregate, but of course they still look like regular human beings, so we need to dirty these fuckers up. And that they do. Ooh, it's genuinely upsetting watching these people just hack away at their hair haphazardly and throw it into the fire. Mm -hmm. There's hints of a sexual energy, like people look like they could begin fucking at any point. It's very carnal. It's it's very carnal, yes. which, which goes with what Barker normally does anyway. Mm -hmm. Like it's all about it, there's a there is a sexuality to this. Like mm -hmm. they they are gaining pleasure from their dehumanization. 
Yes. Yeah. And and like the return of your god is a celebration that needs to be consumed on a flesh level. There is a really cool shot. And it's very reminiscent of Anaconda when we get the in- interior shot of the Anaconda as it's swallowing John Boy. Mm. It's when, and also kind of like Freddy versus Jason when Jason reinflates, but yep. um, it's when they are resurrecting Nyx and the yep. camera like goes inside his body as we see all of his organs like mm-hmm. moisten and inflate inside of him. Yeah, and I have to think that this is a practical effect because I think it looks really good. No, it, it absolutely does. I don't know if it's practical or not, but it looks really good. It, it might be because the camera's moving really fast, too. Like It's like a tracking shot through his body. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, oh, I, I was... From this point on, the movie has me. And granted, oh, yeah. it ends about three times. It's like Lord of the Rings and <laughs> the King. Yeah. But I don't care. It's just, it's because it's so awesome. Like everything that happens, like it builds, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't like end. And then it gives you two more like lesser endings. Like it just gets bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first time it ends in quotation marks, you kind of feel a little underwhelmed. Like, oh, that was too mm-hmm. easy. And yeah. then you're like, oh, it's not over. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> it, it feels very much like a video game. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So Butterfield resurrects Nyx by removing the facial appendage. And this is where people start to go batshit crazy. You know, he's basically saying like, get ready. Your God is coming back. Uh, They start breaking glass and they want to fall on their knees for it. But that that's technically after Nyx has come back. But one very fun thing is that when Nyx is fully reanimated and he's got I mean, I love the makeup on this because he's had this appendage over his face for 13 years. He's seen no sun. So like when Butterfield says, open your eyes, he immediately has to close them because it's painful. He hasn't seen light in 13 years. And then his face has markings from where the metal was fixed against his skin. So he looks like he's got discoloration and tattooing on it. And it's Mm -hmm. so memorable. Yeah, the makeup effects work on Nyx is awesome. Um, And then we have his third eye. (laughs) Trace, walk me through. Say I haven't seen this film. What do you make of this third eye? Okay, so I want to read you something from... Bloody Disgusting, actually. Jonathan Barkhan did an in-defense of Lord of Illusions for Bloody Disgusting back in 2016. And he says, Or Nyx's third eye, which is rather grotesquely turtle-heading in and out of his forehead, (laughs) making for a visual that falls under the it's gross, so I'll laugh gag. Now, I wanted to bring this up because it's the difference between... Are you going to say it's the difference between a straight man and a gay man? Yes. I think this is a sensibility that queer audiences might have a, a different kind of read on. Well, because when when he says turtle heading, I just imagine an uncircumcised penis because like that's what it's referred to. <laughs> so it's I, I, I I'm just okay. So straight audiences view this thing as like a penis type thing because he's a man, right. whereas queer audiences are like, oh, that's an asshole. Yeah. Like that 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 that's a flat out puckering winky eye butthole on this guy's forehead. And it it should be said, because we've not really talked about it, but there will come a moment where in order to, you know, we've mentioned it briefly in passing, there's a moment where Nyx has to sacrifice his followers. And it's this great special effects sequence, but part of what happens is that he collapses a part of the floor into a pit that he hovers above holding Dorothea. Mm -hmm. And the pit also looks like a butthole. It does. (laughs) It has the wrinkles around the hole. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you're visually cued in all of these different capacities. And one could argue, you know, like, oh, it's a good symmetry. Like, he is connected to the hole. The hole is his power. It's where he's going to, like, you know, call up 
hell on earth and ruin everything, but also buttholes. <laughs> Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you, so I know that women, like, they have the, if I, I've seen fried green tomatoes, so I know that women like to take classes where they hold mirrors under their vagina and, like, look at their vagina. That's clearly <laughs> a thing that everyone does. Are you now encouraging people to look at their pucker hole? I, yes. I, I, if you haven't experienced your own or someone else's butthole, um, please do it. If it grosses you out, just take a shower first. And by, you know, always, like, don't, don't just do it if you feel uncomfortable, like, always take a shower first. But, Yes. Please, programming here. Very good activist of that. <laughs> I was going to say, if if you have difficulty looking at your own in the mirror, may we recommend seeking out a sexual partner? Yeah, that look at someone else's. Their own. Yeah, <laughs> really get in there, get to learn it. Um, <laughs> you know, go full handmaiden like POV butthole oh. shot and just kind of oh. observe it. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah. then stick your tongue out. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, oh these cultists my. are dead. They get sucked into quicksand. I mean, okay, so this is for me the most memorable sequence in the entire film. Because mm -hmm. I I think it haunted me a little bit as a teenager. Because I, I would have seen this when I was probably 14 or 15. Because uh, I would have seen it on video. Yeah. And I just remember the moment where the ground falls away and he's hovering with this woman. She's shrieking and he calls open a storm in an underground cavern kind of place. These people, you know, party like it's the opening of the Matrix 2. They're dancing in the rain and then the ground just turns to goop and they start to get sucked in and uh, folks again if you haven't seen this it kind of looks like that scene in as above so below where oh, they come yeah. upon people half submerged in the ground but they're still alive and they can grab and move and they're shrieking in agony it's, it's really good it's upsetting it's terrifying I mean, everything about this finale is fantastic um so Basically, though, and this was like the studio gave them more money because so, Barker said that he wanted a more spectacular ending for Nyx, but they didn't have any money for something really spectacular in the way of a demise. Hmm. And then United Artists came across and said, you know, if you want to blow him to pieces as an articulated animatronic puppet, here's the money. <laughs> and so, like, because of this, like, the studio, for once, did something good for Clive Barker, and right. they just gave all this money, which is why we have this fantastic protracted fin wait, extended finale. Yeah, yeah. And and it does look great. Like so we you know, we, we need to have a, a few battles. Dorothea gets a shot off in the pucker. Uh, Swan's brain explodes inside his head, but he's see... still alive. <laughs> he's still alive. Yeah, apparently it just causes some minor bleeding of the head. Um, we did also jump over the part where uh, Swan and Butterfield go tete-a-tete and Swan burns half of Butterfield's face off, but it's okay. very much a like the boy is mine kind of battle. <laughs> oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's almost like a cat fight, but it's mm -hmm. men. Yeah, and the the funny thing is that Swan is not in love with Nix. Nix is in love with Swan, and then Butterfield is in love with Nix. It's the my best friend's wedding, but Clive Barker. <laughs> <laughs> Which one is Cameron Diaz? Uh, Cameron Diaz is one hundred percent Swan and. Butterfield is Julia Roberts. Right. Okay. And then Nick is Dermot Mulroney. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know that I could see Julia Roberts wearing those pants well. <laughs> she doesn't have a penis for it. <laughs> uh, hmm. Interesting. Now I'm imagining Julia Roberts with a penis. Okay. So. 
Uh, yeah, so so we have a bit of that. We've got Dorothea shooting Nix in the head. We think he's dead. He comes back. He's smacking In the butthole. She shoots him in the butthole. But it doesn't knock him down. It just frees Demore, who has been penetrated in his own head by Nix. So he was seeing everybody in their jelly and shit mm-hmm. forms. And then uh, Nix ultimately plans to dump Dorothea into the hole because, of course, he's lashing out at her because she is the object of Swan's affection. So he's very much like, man, the guy that I love kicked me to the curb because he's in love with you. Well, I'm going to throw you into this giant butthole. He can dump her in my hole. uh, Her in your hole? I'll I'll, I'll go for Famke Jansen, dude. I'm not going to lie. Fair. Okay, so you'll flip for (laughs) Famke. Got it. Um, yeah, and I mean, honestly, I mean, it's it's just a bunch of this, you know, like, yeah, I, I the, Dorothea does get a good line where like, I, I think it's, um, oh, yeah, when he corners her at the butthole mm-hmm. uh, of the ground, not his head. Right. And she just goes, what the fuck are you? And I'm like, yes. yeah, I almost clapped. I was like, yes. Yeah, because like, really, I shot you in the head. You you're wearing a third eye pucker hole. And you honestly look like you're like your clothes kind of look like they came from a mummy apparel store. <laughs> like is it a drape is it a toga party is it dirty toilet paper i don't know i just had a really good like kirstie alley and um drop day gorgeous where she's like i figured out the theme i figured out the subtitle and tell me if you can get my reference the third eye is the butthole of the face <laughs> yes the house bunny uh i just watched that a couple of weeks ago i did too Ah, <laughs> uh, symmetry so, yeah, I mean, basically, shit happens, they kill his ass, they drop him down the hole, he's still alive, they escape, and they blow him up, and then we get to see Swan's face peel off for real. Yeah, that was impressive. I must Love say, that. I also enjoyed watching Nyx fall, apparently, into the center of the world, because he breaks through the ground, like, three times, and then ends up in a pit of lava. I w- This movie goes there so hard. Like, I mean... Whatever I feel about the noir aspects of the film, you know, it, it does hurt it for me. This, everything about these right. last 25 or 30 minutes, it's yeah. just so big. It's so grandiose. It's so visionary. Bravo, Clive Barker, dude. Like, this is awesome. Yeah, I don't know that it would have been sustainable at this kind of energy level because it it would probably right. be exhausting. But there's a case to be made here. Like, the cult stuff is so good. and And all of this stuff, like... It's filled with what-the-fuck moments, great action sequences. I mean, I think I remember in the credits that... I can't remember who does the makeup, but I saw that some of the practical effects, like the the prosthetics and that kind of thing, it's Greg Nicotero. Mm -hmm. So, like, it all looks really good. Oh, yeah. I mean... Yes, I I, I don't don't know what to add on to that, because you're right. Like, it's just very impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's just a big old showstopper, and then the movie basically becomes From Dust Till Dawn, and Demore and Dorothea walk away, and the giant pucker hole is closed up, and I will say the, the final gay reading, or queer reading, that I had of this is that mm-hmm. Nix's flaming body, if he can't have the, the man that he wants alive, he will take all of the skin, because the minute that he gets Swan's fleshy parts down yep. the pit he's that done. hole just closes right up which is kind of uh, like the end of a sexual <laughs> encounter right that, that hole just closes right that hole up. just closes right up 
Wow. We are closed for business. Let's move on. Uh, yeah. And then Demur and Dorothea walk off into the dawn. I really hope there are some straight male listeners who are huge fans of this movie that have an entirely new perspective of it. It's about butts. It's That's about what we're saying. Butts. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I mean, like, final thoughts. I mean, everything I've said, y'all know. I mean, I... I I like it fine. I gave it a three out of five on Letterboxd. Um, I love the beginning. I love the end. I'm just kind of meh about everything in between. Yeah, I'm a little bit more positive. I think I started at a three and this moved up to a 3.5 on a rewatch. Mm-hmm. It's not a perfect film, but I think it has a lot of fun. The imagery is highly memorable. It feels like a Clive Barker film. I like that there is a weirdness in it. And I'm happy that it exists because I think the world is richer for weird, quirky films like this. Oh, I agree. And much like most anything Clive Barker, it's ambitious as fuck. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so messy because he's got so much he's trying to cram into this. And you're just like, dude, like not everything can fit in the butthole. You've Sometimes you got to <laughs> cut back a little. Sometimes you need some poppers. <laughs> Unless you're in Canada and those are illegal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um okay well i mean in, any final thoughts for you no i'm good cool so yeah, before we uh announce what we're covering next week uh we do have quite a few announcements we were on movie oubliette discussing the 1997 creature feature the relic we were on nightmare junkhead discussing the 2006 creature feature black sheep hmm. it's like we got a type it's like we got a theme but hold out and we'll tell you why that is yes but yes, if you'd like to contact us, you can visit our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our Facebook group to talk to other listeners. Tweet the show at Horror Queers or Instagram us at Horror Queers or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. It's a lot of Horror Queers. A lot of Horror Queers. Um, I am not tongue-tied. If you have two seconds, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write a review. We've been getting a good influx of reviews, so don't stop those. Visit tpublic.com, T-E-E public, for Horror Queers merch like t-shirts, stickers, and mugs. And if you want even more content, please visit our patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers because we are doing amidst coronavirus again a creature feature theme so we have episodes on arachnophobia Mm -hmm. the aforementioned deep rising yes and an audio commentary on one of my favorite creature features snakes on a plane oh fuck <laughs> i'm so i actually haven't seen snakes on a plane in a while you know it was really hard everyone y'all know we had a lot of choices for creature features for this and we went with these but i think it's gonna be really 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 fucking fun i think so too yeah arachnophobia has got some seriousness deep rising is just a blast and then snakes on a plane is ridiculous i don't think you remember how humorous arachnophobia is but yes it is the most serious out of the three <laughs> <laughs> um but what are we covering next week joe all right, we are taking it back to the 80s for arguably the pro-queerest slasher film that no one has ever seen. So we are going to be checking out Butcher, Baker, Nightmare Maker, a.k.a. Night Warning. And listeners, if you've never heard of this movie, that's fine. This is a little <laughs> hard to find, but basically you can go to a site called Ronin Flicks, R-O-N-I-N, and I think Flicks is with an X. They do have the Blu-ray available, but it's 30 bucks. However, if you want to go the free route, you can actually search Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker on YouTube, and the full film is there. I believe it's about 93 minutes, and that's what we watched for this for, to do this. It is a poor transfer. It looks like a VHS. <laughs> it's a VHS transfer, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it it's fine. Like, you'll be able to hear it fine. You'll be able to, like, see everything fine. But it looks like a VHS, basically. So don't expect, like, high definition unless you buy that Blu-ray. Yeah. And the, the only reason that we would ever encourage people to check out a film on YouTube like this that's not, you know, uh, like, 100 years or, like, the license is revoked, it's just because this film is really difficult to find. So you're either stuck with that quite expensive blue, which is mm-hmm. worth, it. It, it's uh, worth it. We've had good reviews from people who have told us they own it. But if you can't get that because of whatever reasons, the only other option that you have is literally this YouTube option. Yeah, it's not streaming anywhere for, for money or for free except for YouTube. Yeah. Um, and I would reiterate that I, I would suggest that you do watch it because we are teaming up with a very prolific queer horror podcast next week for that episode. Mm-hmm. And that's but we're not going to say who. You're just going to have to tune in. Tune in next week for Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, a.k.a night warning but on that note we can cross out lord of illusions i'm sorry we can cross out clive barker's lord of illusions (laughs) thank you give the fucking man some credit (laughs) (laughs) yes and cross out horror queers Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, Sephora queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.